Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. We're still on summer break and we'll be back with new episodes on August 29th. But in the meantime, I wanted to bring you a conversation I had recently with Isaac Saul, who is the founder and publisher of Tangle, a nonpartisan news and politics newsletter that summarizes the best arguments from across the political spectrum on one issue every day. Isaac and I talked about how he cultivated trust from an audience that's pretty evenly split across partisan lines and his philosophy on media literacy, which is different, I think, than some of the previous discussions about media literacy we've had on the show. It's clear that Isaac is passionate about media and democracy and is really doing his part to strengthen both of those things. You can visit the show notes to sign up for Tangle and check it out for yourself. But for now, here is my conversation with Isaac Saul. Isaac Saul, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jenna. I'm glad to be here. So lots to talk with you about your work with, with Tangle, the news outlet that you founded, and also just kind of the state of the media in, in general and how we think about that in, in relationship to democracy. But for listeners who have not yet read Tangle, I, I hope everyone will go check it out. But can you walk us through how, how you came to start it? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I typically talk about kind of two Genesis stories for the newsletter. The first is that I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is and was a very politically divided bellwether county when I was in middle and high school. And so, you know, we didn't have a lot of racial diversity in my high school, but we had a ton of class diversity and we had a ton of political diversity. And I just had a lot of friends and friends of family who were, you know, all across the political spectrum. And so growing up, I just experienced a wide range of political views and I think had a fairly unique experience in America today where I was exposed to a lot of friends who came from kind of all different walks of life and had really divergent views on the state of politics in America. And then I went to school at the University of Pittsburgh, which is also, you know, notoriously, especially the areas surrounding it, a very important part of the Pennsylvania race for president, which makes it a very important part of the national race for president. And also kind of a blue collar town with, you know, a lot of political diversity. And especially now there's like a growing tech hub there and the city's changing a lot. So, you know, all throughout kind of into my early 20s, I just grew up around a, people with a wide range of political views. And then as a political reporter, I guess the second part of the Genesis story was that, you know, the first job I ever got was at the Huffington Post, which is obviously a notoriously left-leaning news outlet. And I always tell people, you know, I didn't take the job because I was just a bleeding heart lib. I applied to 40 jobs and it was the only one I got. And getting a job with a journalism degree as an English major is pretty hard. But once I worked there for like a year, you know, I had a few pieces that went viral, some political commentary that kind of blew up. And when I left, 
I realized pretty quickly that I had just been pegged, you know, by anybody right of center as like a HuffPost guy and everything I said was kind of dismissed after working there by about half the country, which when you're a political reporter or a political columnist and you want people to take your ideas seriously or you're reporting seriously, that's like, that sucks. It's a really bad thing to happen. So kind of the second Genesis story was that I realized just how much in a bubble everybody in the country was. And this was sort of like 2013, 2014, which you know, we we know this now because there's been so much reporting and so much attention given to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and how representative they are of America or how not representative they are and how we sort of all create our own social media feeds and stuff. And so I had this dream of building a news outlet that was trusted by people on both sides of the political spectrum. And so I drew up this concept where every day we just focus on one story, kind of like a slow news, you know, not like breaking news, not scoops, but take one debate, one big issue that people were talking about, very clearly give like the most neutral summary possible, and then tell you exactly what the right is saying about it, exactly what the left is saying about it. And then I would share my take. So I write kind of a mini editorial every day. And I think we're definitely achieving our goal of bringing in a really diverse readership. And, you know, I survey my readers all the time. And based on those surveys, I know that we have a pretty nicely even split, a little bit more left-leaning than right-leaning, but a pretty nicely even split of political ideology among our readers. So, you know, something I think about a lot as as a podcaster, and I think this is true of, of newsletters, and I, I know you are a podcaster as well, is uh, are we creating our own echo chambers, filter bubbles, what have you, if you will, just because of the nature of like subscription-based media, right? So how likely are people to seek out content that is going to challenge them or, you know, that they disagree with? So people, for example, listening to a podcast about democracy are already going to have some kind of interest or concern or curiosity about it. And so I guess, do you do you think about that at all? It's like the question that addles my mind all the time, but maybe I'm I'm just making myself crazy for no good reason. No, I mean, I think it's a legitimate thing to think about. And I, I'm, I'll be honest, I am totally deliberate about pitching the concept of Tangled differently to people based on who my mm-hmm. audience is. So you know, there are kind of two big ways to grow a newsletter today. One is like the cross promotion, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you get somebody to share Tangle in their newsletter and you give them a shout out in yours or, or it's the paid growth, which is paying for advertising space and other newsletters or podcasts or whatever. And when I when I know that I'm going to be in front of a liberal audience or a conservative audience, the pitch for Tangle is different. So like if I if I'm going straight to a conservative audience, the pitch is I also think the media is biased. I don't really trust the mainstream political press. I created something because I think the way that the political news operates right now is broken in the country. And I'm going to be really honest about, you know, what my own views are. So you won't have to do any guesswork about my own biases. And that resonates really strongly with the right, you know, and it's organic. It's a real, it's my, it's my genuine belief. Like I, I did start Tangle because I do think there are a lot of issues with how the media operates, the quote unquote mainstream media in the political atmosphere we have today. And then when I'm going to like a left leaning audience, it's it's more like, I guess, poking the intellectual curiosity of people. It's like, you know, if you are somebody who doesn't understand 
why 70 million people voted for Donald Trump instead of Hillary Clinton, like you should read my newsletter because there's a lot of good arguments out there that are coming from conservatives about major issues today and you're not being exposed to them. You are living in a bubble. And to be clear, like that bubble exists on the right just the way it does on the left. But I think people on the left are generally, in my experience, more interested in kind of puncturing that and breaking mm-hmm. it a little bit. And so it's a better pitch just from like an advertising perspective mm-hmm. to, to show that to them. And those are two like genuine come from really honest places pitches. I think they're both really good reasons to read Tangle. But, you know, if if I go to people on the left and say, come read my newsletter because the mainstream media is biased and they're lying to you, they're not going to sign up. They don't, you know, that just sounds like too Trumpian to whatever to them. And the same is true the other way, you know, the the people on the right who get this like come get out of your bubble. They just think I'm trying to indoctrinate them or something. And so mm-hmm. you have to be mindful of, of how you're selling it, I think, on both sides. So, you know, speaking of the, the mainstream media, one of the things I've noticed as I've been reading Tangle is there's not a lot of right wing media. So how do you think about Fox News, OAN, content coming from people like Steve Bannon or, or Ben Shapiro? Like where, if at all, do they fit in terms of what you're presenting in Tangle? Yeah, for sure. So Fox News and Ben Shapiro have both definitely been in Tangle a few times. And I think Fox News more regularly just because they're better at transcribing, you know, the Tucker, Hannity, top of the hour stuff, which I definitely like to share. It's a really good question because that 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 media needs to be represented in the newsletter. There, so there are like a few parameters that I think about for inclusion. The The first parameter is like gut check. Do I find this a compelling argument? I mean, that's just like the number one thing I'm reading so much and consuming so much political news every day that like, it just has to stand out to me as being something that makes me think that presents an argument that I think is coherent. That will be convincing to people. The second thing is, is this representative? So am I seeing this idea sort of shared widely in certain spaces, whether it's on social media, whether it's from members of Congress of a political party, whether I'm seeing like the same argument repeated across like different opinion pieces or podcast hits or TV shows. And then the third one is, you know, is this something that is like, so egregiously wrong that I'm going to have to spend a bunch of time deconstructing it in my take? Or is there enough kind of factual basis that it's founded in, in order for me to, you know, share it with my readers and not feel like I'm just spreading something that's a complete lie and, and, or, or just like totally misleading. And that happens, you know, for what it's worth, there's a lot of leftist media Mm -hmm. out there that does that too. It's just like, I don't think it's talked about as Mm -hmm. much in the press. So like OAN, I think maybe one time they made it into Tangle. Generally speaking, I think they are doing, they they are basically functioning as like a political arm of the Trump organization, quote unquote. And I think they do a lot of really misleading work that is not generally grounded in verifiable facts, or it's just like a lot of conjecture. Uh, And so I don't tend to share their content a lot in Tangle because I don't like, I can't see the legs that it's standing on. Tucker Carlson has gotten a lot of, you know, space in my newsletter. And I've gotten a lot of heat for that Mm -hmm. from readers who are more left of center. And, you know, while he does stuff on his show that makes me very uncomfortable and makes me feel like he's sort of, 
misleading and lying to his viewers sometimes. I also think he does a lot of stuff on his show that is actually grounded in the reality of the state of American mm-hmm. politics. And that's like fair objections and fair things to bring forward. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a really hard thing. We have an editorial staff with some ideological diversity. And when I'm not sure of something, I'll bring it to them and sort of get some temperature checks from people about what they think. But I definitely try and, you know, I, I, I generally like to think we we feature three opinions from each side in every newsletter. And I generally try and hit like the, the establishment sort of like center right, center left, a kind of more mainstream like, you know, view that you could bucket in either way and then maybe a more fringe left and more fringe mm. right view. So, you know, a more progressive or a more kind of Trumpy or like far right-ish type perspective in every newsletter. Now, that doesn't always happen for sure. Sometimes they're dominated by one side or the other. But, you know, I would say like the Wall Street Journal editorial board, I mean, I think traditionally has been you know, more representative of establishment Republicans. Mm-hmm. But I actually think in the last couple of years, they've trended much further to the right than they mm-hmm. have in the past. And I often find that they're they're presenting a pretty like Trump Republican argument, even though they've tried to detach themselves from the Trump movement. I mean, they've, you know, after January 6th and stuff, they've been pretty, that, that editorial board has been pretty clear that they don't want Trump to run, but you know, they, they speak glowingly of Ron DeSantis who on a legislative perspective and ideological perspective, I think is basically the same person. So, you know, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a really tricky thing to navigate, but I want people not just to get out of their bubbles. I also want them to be represented in the newsletter. So if I hear from a bunch of readers that are like, you're not showing this argument, which is how mm-hmm. I feel anywhere in the newsletter, then that's typically like a, oh crap moment. I like, I might've missed the mark on today's newsletter, mm-hmm. basically. That's interesting. You mentioned about the Wall Street Journal, because I, I, I've been thinking lately too, about how much of the sort of grow, like the future divide in media is not going to be so much left and right, but like establishment versus non-establishment, mainstream versus non-mainstream. How do you, how do you think about whether this the the divide in media will continue to be along left right lines the way that our our politics has traditionally been yeah it's a really good question you know i i, I am of the opinion that you know the the kind of bubbling class solidarity and class divide is sort of becoming like more of a rumbling earthquake and i think that we're going to see that come to the surface a lot more in the next five or 10 years. Obviously, this gets talked about a lot in the mainstream press, but probably the biggest indication of it is just the way Hispanic voters are trending right now, who tend to be really working class, you know, blue collar voters, and they are moving toward the Republican Party. And And I do think there is a really big divide between the traditional working class Democrats, like the labor unions, that have been represented by the Democratic Party and the like increasingly online, in control, highly educated progressive left. Now, the progressive left doesn't have a lot of power in Congress, it should be noted, but I think they're pretty influential culturally right now. And I think that's going to create some interesting divides. I think as the wealth inequality in the country continues to sort of fracture and as, you know, I'm I'm 31 years old, so 
I'm kind of like this post-recession generation where, you know, the same salary that 50 years ago could get you a house and raise three kids on is just like so astronomically low compared to what we have to do now in order to do that comfortably to own a home. You know, it's just like, it's a totally different generation, I think, with a totally different perspective about who's in control and where the levels of levers of power are in the country. And a lot of people are looking angrily at corporations and the wealthy. And I think that's on both sides of the aisle. I think that's a big reason why Trump won in 2016. And I think there's, you know, the, I often say like the, the Bernie Sanders Trump are, are not at 12 and six o'clock, you know, mm-hmm. they're at 10 and two o'clock. And I think they're getting closer every day. And I don't, I don't know how that's going to realign the country, but I think right now Republicans are definitely starting to win back some of those working class voters when they used to kind of be the party of special business interests. And, you know, that's still true in some regards, but we're, we're in a, we're in a weird spot and I don't know how long the left, right divide holds. Mm -hmm. I think we'll we'll probably have to do some redefining of that sometime in the near future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you engage with your readers in terms of when you when you make a mistake or as you hear from people and maybe your thinking thinking evolves on something and then also like how much of of that behavior do you think is is replicable by an institution whether it's it's a media institution or to the extent that you know higher education interacts with the public for example is it really something that can really be done best at the individual level yeah so there, there are kind of two things that I think make Tangle unique right now, at least. One is that I'm very public and deliberate about my corrections. So if I get something wrong in the newsletter, the next day, I'll feature the correction at the top of the newsletter with an explanation of how the error happened. And then also an update on the, the correction count, which is you know, basically how many corrections Tangle has had in X amount of weeks that we've been in existence. I find that this is probably one of the most popular things that I do. I get constant feedback about it from people just saying that they've never seen it before and like the transparency makes them trust me more. And the first time I did it, I was very nervous about doing it because I knew it meant I was committing to tracking these corrections for a really long time. And I wasn't sure exactly how people were going to feel about it. So it's been awesome to get that positive feedback and it's made me a lot more confident to kind of own the mistakes I make, which happen, you know, they, they happen everywhere at every news outlet. So just putting them front and center and being really transparent about them is important. Not like a footnote at the bottom of the article or a stealth change without any correction or some kind of, you know, correction that's not even on the original article page, which you see a lot of people do in the media. That I think is super replicable. I think. I think every news outlet could be way more transparent about their corrections. And I think they could be a lot less elusive about them. I mean, what I see most often from the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, the Washington Post is corrections that don't actually explain how the error happened and also don't take like a full accounting of it. They're usually kind of couched in vague language and they're not totally unequivocal and I don't like that. And it makes me, you know, even though I know those are the best reporters in the world and the best editors in the world, which I think they are, it makes me trust them less. So that's one thing. The other thing that I do 
pretty regularly is I'll either share reader criticism of my writing or I'll explain why I've changed my mind about an issue very transparently in the newsletter. And that is just like really a product of, I, in the beginning, used to talk about this, that like, I I felt like it was really important that people were open-minded enough to move their positions and that I didn't view changing your mind about an issue for legitimate reasons as being a bad thing. You know, you often hear about flip-flopping in politics and hypocrisy, and that's like the favorite criticism to hand out at people. And there's a lot of that. And I think there's a lot of political expediency and how people change their minds about certain issues. But I think some people also have genuine evolutions. And I think it's really important to encourage that and embrace that because the thing you believe today shouldn't have to be the thing you always believe. And so whenever I feel myself changing my position on something, I usually find a way to include that in the newsletter because I want to kind of model that behavior and and say it's okay. And in fact, it's a good thing to be like, I got new information. And so my perspective changed. I think that's like a really rational, reasonable way to approach stuff. I think that's less scalable. I think that's harder for people to do because, you know, my newsletter lends itself to that because I'm giving myself space to have my personal opinion every day. And yeah, I mean, I think that's an advantage that I have over some of the more traditional institutions, which Mm -hmm. is good for me and not great for them, I guess. Speaking of of developing that that sense of of skepticism or, you know, considering multiple arguments, you recently wrote a piece for Persuasion, which I believe you also published in Tangle, about media literacy and maybe some ways that we need to to change our approach there. Can can you walk us through that, what you think is, is is maybe going wrong and, and how we can kind of write the ship when it comes to media literacy. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess my, my general thrust in that piece was that I think the inclination to sort of deplatform, censor, cancel, whatever you want to call it, whatever form it takes, the ideas that we really disagree with strongly today is a pretty dangerous thing to do. And it's a dangerous solution to pursue, namely because most of the stuff that we think is true today is probably going to end up being wrong or different in some way in 10 years or 20 years or 100 years or 500 years. And I laid out a bunch of examples about how we know that's true just from historical context. In my mind, I mean, the single biggest thing that's lacking in the country right now in terms of navigating misinformation or disinformation, which are slightly different, disinformation being intentional, malicious sharing of, you know, ill-informed or false information is media literacy. You know, I I have friends my age in their 30s who don't know how to distinguish between an opinion piece or a straight news hit. I have friends who don't know what ideological tilt certain news websites have and take things that they say kind of wholesale, or they listen to, you know, YouTubers or podcast hosts who have like very sort of covert political affiliations or inclinations and kind of sell them one side of stories that really misinforms them in a really serious way. And so there are some groups out there that, you know, I think are helping address this issue. And, you know, I think most of them focus on a few things like how to get people to be really skeptical of all the news that they consume and not skeptical in the sense that it's like, I don't believe anything I'm being fed by the mainstream media, but by asking themselves questions when they're reading an article like, 
what views are not being represented here, who's being interviewed first, who's being quoted first, what organization do they represent, what is that organization's political bent or affiliation, why is that quote being featured strongly, where can I go to get a more diverse look at you know this same story or an opposite lens for the same story, how to spot fake websites. So really basic things like that, waiting to, for you know breaking news stories to be fleshed out a little more before posting about them on social media or making up your minds about what happened. I think we're all seeing that with the Uvalde shooting right now. It's like a great modern example of how the story has dramatically changed over the course of three or four months in a way that should be really significant to like the policy discussions about mm-hmm. how we're going to solve this thing. So I, I'm, I'm big, big on media literacy. I think that's really important. I think one crucial element of that is just a diversification of people's media diets. Right. So, you know, as, as we wrap up here, Isaac, you've said that Tangle has a, a fairly decent split or a fairly decent ideological diversity among your readers, which is, you know, as, as you well know, given polarization and even increased geographical sorting of where we live is becoming more and more rare these days. So I've been here thinking, how can we bring Tangle to the rest of our democracy? I wonder if, if you've thought about ways to bring tangles readers together or or ways that you can maybe work with other organizations that are also trying to you know do work to to bridge divides or to expose people to different ideologies i very much want to focus on kind of my core strength and what i think i'm good at which is producing this newsletter product that I think is like a a proven product. Now there are a lot of really good organizations out there. Like braver angels is a good one that, you know, facilitates these sort of cross red blue conversations and gets people to sit down and be in the same room together. I've had their, one of their hosts or founders on my podcast. I've gone on their podcast. You know, I try and cross pollinate with audiences like that. But I think fundamentally I want Tangle to sort of be this educational piece and I want it to be this piece where people can consume and interact with this stuff in sort of a more private, less viewed way. And that's actually really intentional for me. I mean, I, I am a huge believer in the idea that social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, has very much brought a lot of toxicity to our political conversations. And I think there's a lot of performance going on on those platforms right now in order to score political points with certain sides. And I found personally, you know, I have people who I are followers of mine or readers of mine who I interact with on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. And then I also get them in my inbox when they reply to my newsletter and they are vastly different people when they are writing to me privately versus when they're writing to me in a way where they know a lot of people are going to see their comment. And that alone has been really educational for me in terms of just like the sort of performance that happens online. I think those in-person conversations are really important. And I encourage people all the time, you know, I, I, I get emails every day from people who are, you know, they have a Trump supporting neighbor across the street and they're a lifelong Democrat and they, they weirdly like the guy, but they can't stand his politics. And what should they do? And my response is always like, grab a six pack of beer and go knock on their door and talk about it. You know, like we really need that right now. I know it sounds very cliche and maybe a little Biden-esque to be like, bring the country together and we can bridge these divides and stuff. But 
I can tell you from really real world experience, these conversations are really possible if you're willing to spend half the time listening and not the whole time talking. And it's it's a lot easier to break through with people in person and find common ground in person than it is to do it online in the spaces that we mm-hmm. operate in right now. And I love the newsletter format. I found that that kind of email is a really intimate way to connect with people and it creates a lot of honesty and vulnerability. And, you know, I've, I've had some really productive back and forths with people who I disagree with really profoundly on certain things. And it's a lot more respectful than the other spaces that I've operated in. So I, I want to grow this and I want to get Tangle in front of as many people as possible. I think I believe in the product. I believe it's a good thing for people. I'm hoping to maybe do some live events down the road. That's definitely something I'm interested in, but I think it'll probably look more like an audience watching some sort of debate that I'm moderating versus, you know, trying to get people to talk to each other because I don't know exactly the best way to do that. And I know there are a lot of organizations that already do that really well, and I'm going to leave it to them. We will leave it there. Isaac, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jenna. It was a blast. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.